Hi, this is John. Today on Theocast, Justin and I were recently interviewed by the Babylon Bee podcast, and it was fun. In the beginning, they wanted to get to know us a little bit, so there's some fun questions there. But the rest of the podcast really is about the gospel. They are asking us about uh, what what is unique about Reformed theology, covenant theology. We got to talk about law gospel distinction in times, which was a little bit of fun. But we also had conversations about the chosen, how pietism and revivalism have influenced the American culture's understanding of Christianity. It was a lively conversation, and we really hope you guys enjoy. We enjoyed getting to know them, but more importantly, we enjoyed getting to be able to share the gospel and explain the hope of Christ. And so we hope you're encouraged by that as well. Stay tuned. If you'd like to help support Theocast, you can do that by leaving us a review on iTunes and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Plus, we have a Facebook group if you'd like to join the conversation there. Thanks for listening. All right. Hey, guys. Uh, welcome to the Babylon Bee interview show. We're really, really excited um, to have these two guys here today. We also have Sam Greer here with me. Uh, I'm Jarrett. And with us today is Justin Purdue and also John Jonathan Moffat. Moffat? Moffat. Jonathan Moffitt. Edward. Jonathan Moffat, Justin Purdue. And you guys do Theocast. Yeah. Um, just for my sake, really quick, and for people listening, what is Theocast? <laughs> Yeah. And uh, and what do you guys do? What's your goal? Yeah, it was a podcast that was started by four pastors about eight years ago, and the whole design of it was we wanted to have more theological conversations so our congregation would benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And then over the over the years, it's kind of morphed and changed and grew, and the hosts have changed. And right now, the last, I guess it's going in our fourth year. Yeah, going on four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so Justin and I, we use it as a, a way to encourage and, and talk about theological subjects that are hard to do on a Sunday morning mm-hmm. uh, for our congregation. And then obviously we have um, you know listeners around the world, but it's been fun. But we really try and focus it from, uh, from a pastoral and reform perspective. So we want to try and take some subjects that can be really complicated and hard yeah. and make them a lot more simple and practical. That's what I like about it. So you guys are very pastoral. Mm-hmm. I, I like that about you guys. And I like even talking with you beforehand. It just feels like you guys are, are pastors at heart, shepherds at heart. Okay, normally you you have a hat on. <laughs> yeah, to say normally is maybe an overstatement, but I do I do <laughs> wear lots of hats from time to time. So, so give me I'm more. a so okay. I have two of these Babylon B hats for you guys. And so you guys should know that I get a lot of flack on social media for the <laughs> yeah. fact that I wear flat bill hats. <laughs> there you Those go. Not cool. Oh, sorry. There we go. <laughs> Ooh, I know. Yeah. I there you go. Here, move this. I'm going to hope that it just cooperates again. All right. You know, the flat bill <laughs> I have an unusually cool. large head, so yeah. we're going to see how this goes. So I just got a comment. Somebody commented online uh, last week. You want me to was, wear this now? It was a very, yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Okay. There was a very strange comment, but it said, the guy, the bald guy's head, uh, like baldness, oh, yeah. is, is accentuated, is accentuated <laughs> 100%. <laughs> they actually wrote 100% by wearing that backwards baseball cap. <laughs> So I guess it makes hey, me look man. 100% more bald that right to there. have a hat on. All right, so let me see. Did, did it affect Oh, yeah. You? I don't know. No, that oh, looks great. Does it work? Not yeah. flatten it out. Should not, I take the stick? You could flatten it out a little I'm more trying. to make it I'm look trying. like... I'm trying. I'm going to work on that in the next five minutes. So okay, we'll, we'll keep working on it. I will. So <laughs> yeah. see if we can get it on brand. That's right. 
So yeah. we so we had a fun segment idea we wanted to throw at you guys. Yeah. It's going to be a little silly, but it's going to be fun. Okay. We're here for it. You'll need both your hands. All right. Here's well, what we're going to do. I'm, I'm working on my hat right now, Sam. Justin, you'll hold your left hand up. John, you'll hold your right hand up. We're going to throw some questions at you guys. It's going to be who is more, like who's got a higher max bench. Oh, and then without okay. looking at each other, point at the person. So I hold my left hand. Uh, yes. So, but I, so, so I can't be able to see here, it. Here. Yes. Right. So John can't see it. All right. Oh, All right. so Dang, that's a good hat on you. Here, here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, just like good. that. Yeah. Okay. So go. here we go. This is gonna be rapid fire. We'll just switch like, off. Just like this. This or this. this. All right. I'll take the so first like one. Exactly. <laughs> I'll take the first one. Jared and I will switch <clears throat> off. Yeah. There we go. Who has again? You guys have been running a podcast together for years. You know each other pretty well. Yeah. Who has a higher one rep max for bench press? <laughs> Unanimous. It's like one of those wedding games. Okay. Exactly. Newlyweds. You actually have to do bench presses. We're just to not know. back to oh. back. <laughs> That's right. Wait, who's who's been to more countries? Ooh. I don't know. Huh. Okay, now you got to really Yeah, explain. should we unpack this? Let's yeah, unpack so this. You guys disagree. How many countries have you been to? Um, I think I think I've been to at least uh, twelve. Okay, you got me then, because I'm probably around tenish. Okay, how? Okay. Why twelve? Well, we went to Romania, and so we had to go through like seven different countries just to get there. And then oh, yeah. outside of that, I've been to like five other ones. You know, Mexico, obviously. And then obviously, the, obviously. if you're a Southern California well, Christian, right. Haiti, you got to do a Mexico right. mission trip. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give that one to you. So yeah, well, there you go. Do you want to my, my Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> Justin's doing the uh, the right bicep. Here. Okay, right. next question: Who preaches longer sermons? Hey, how, how long are we talking? Fifty minutes. He's fifty. Not bad. That's pretty good. I try and stay below forty. Respect. John it. mocks me. <laughs> I'm just not yeah. that good. He does a lot of backhanded comments about long sermons. <laughs> I know what he means. I just try to take it in stride. You know, the long sermon is a is a it's a dying art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. be like a right, who is more like uh, who's more likely to hit under par in an 18 hole golf Ooh. game? Ooh, right now, it'd be me. Yeah, because I don't play hey, a lot right now. Uh, yeah. That's good. Okay. At who, one time, at one time, I would have been him, but been not right All now. Right. All right. Who has more refined tastes in food? Who's got the better palate? Oh, Justin, do you have a cooking yeah. interest? Mm. He's yes. just a he's just a foodie in general. Just a foodie? I, I, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, man. It's a foodie town. Is so, it? Yeah, food, drink, all that stuff. I love food, but he definitely loves it more than I. But do. we both kind of, <laughs> we both kind of do. Do you swish and swirl when you're drinking coffee? Do you? Oh man, waft? coffee. I don't know. Hey, I don't know if we're. I don't know if we're that much of a coffee we're, aficionado. I mean, are we are we allowed to talk about like specifics? Yeah, you're reformed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we know. I, I just wanted. To, I wanted to test want. the waters. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we're both. We both are bourbon guys. Yeah. We like. Oh, that. We like. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and we like. Uh, That's one subtext. of our questions. So okay, okay, oh, okay. Right. There you go. So we're bourbon so. guys. We like red wine. I mean, so yeah, do okay. a little swirl and stuff like that with the with those. I mean, we'll get into it later. But do you guys yeah. smoke cigars or anything? Oh, we, yeah. we last we night on the beach, baby. Dang, dude. And we'll probably have more while we're here. That's right. Good to know. Maybe we, maybe we need to have one. Well, that might be a great After idea. recording. <laughs> I mean, after recording. I'm changing clothes before we go to the seminary. That's right. Anyways. We got to oh, change clothes, good. so we're good. Yeah. Yeah. That's the most right. masculine thing about being a cigar smoker is like scrubbing the leather on your car because your wife gets annoyed by the smell. <laughs> Come on. Oh, I don't That's do it in the true. car. I That's haven't broken yeah, I don't. Do, I, I, haven't, I don't smoke in the car either. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, I used to smoke much more. I, I haven't for about four months now, but anyway. I tried my first cigar at a... Uh, at 
with Dan at a reading group for like a, a bunch of guys who read Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton. Oh, and yeah. it was a hoot. Dude, that's like the most reformed thing you just of said right there. So <laughs> I, I got this idea that I think will be a funny sketch. Who knows? But it'll be a funny sketch to catch someone's internal monologue. Like, don't cough, don't cough, don't cough. Oh, no, it's going out. It's going out. <laughs> Just someone trying to play yeah. cool when they're a bunch around a bunch of burly. So is my bill flat enough Chester right now? Tonight? Oh, it's it's good, good, it looks good on you. Good. I think it's kind of perfect. Yeah. All right. So who's been married longer? <coughs> uh, you. How long have you been married? Uh, this will be twenty years for me. Oh my years. goodness! I got married young. But dang, Thir- thirteen. He you finds a wife. Finds a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> a child husband. You don't uh, hear about that? Yeah. No, I was married when I was twenty-two. So oh, okay. that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. What is your wife's name? Not far from here. Uh, her name is Judith. We have four kids. Yeah. That's so sweet. It's a great name. What about you? How long have you been married? I'm so Ten. Sorry. Ten years. Yeah, so I got married later. I got married at 30. Uh-huh. My, I'm married to Michelle. We also have four kids. Four kids, and what are their, what age? Oldest just turned nine. The youngest is four. Okay. So they're like four years and change apart. Got yeah, it. So it was, yeah. Rather still, big, it still is a lot going guy. on in the Purdue house. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, no. I, I Very looked, few dull moments. I looked on your church's About Us page, and I remember just noting the four kids all had pretty reformed names. It was <laughs> yeah. like Charles especially, and Adam and Spurgeon. Especially Knox. Knox, that, that was who I was thinking John of. John Knox, yeah. What are, what are the rest of the names? So Karis, a uh, Greek word for grace. Oh, yes. So she's my oldest. Then Titus. Yep. Jane, obviously not biblical, but that's my wife's best friend in college, so Aww. I lost that one. And then Knox, <laughs> my family goes back to um, Scotland, and my great ancestor was a part of John Knox Church. So I was like, that's such a Very killer cool. name. We're naming our son. What Knox. was yours? What's your Scottish clan? What, what are you guys from? Uh, actually, there's an actual Moffatsville. There's a Moffatsville. Because mm-hmm. oh. we're McIntyres. We're on the island of Skye. Oh, yeah. Maybe we have. You know, probably relatives in common. Yeah. I'm I'm a Greer. We have I I have my grandmother is Irish, like Irish Catholic. Her hair redder than mine. Oh, wow. Um, but there might be some Scottish that's in saying there. Something. Mick Greer. Yeah, yeah. that's saying something. That's saying something. <laughs> yeah. So I'm my last name is French. So you guys can just tolerate me. <laughs> I'm actually his so last is name mine. is French. Yeah. We oui, Purdue oui. means it's it's perdition. So lost. So oh. it is. mine means the master. Yours oh. is better in terms the of master. master. Yeah. Who's yeah. next on the questions? I, maître, is you, it me? You. Who? Hands up. Oh my goodness. About not counting. Muscles over. up, guns up, suns out, guns out. <laughs> Who is more reformed? Ooh. I don't know if I don't answer that. I don't know. That's yeah. I think that's a That might be a legit toss up there. Yeah. I don't we're both I mean we're I don't know where we would disagree on that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> Non-answer. Kind of that would, man, that was a step we then, I mean, let me I, do a, I don't know if there's anything we would disagree Let me do on. a freebie question. Right. Cut that one. Forget it. Here we go. Who's more likely to be in a football video game from a couple years ago? Well, more than a couple. <laughs> more than a couple. Wow. Now, can you elaborate on your presence in a football video okay, game? Okay, so, yeah, this was from the mid-2000s, um, early 2000s. Yeah. So EA Sports has a franchise, NCAA football, in the year. And so when I was when I was playing as as a college guy, it was on the EA Sports game for a few seasons. That's really cool. RB number thirty five. So that it, you know, did you, yeah, I could say more, but I don't know that we need to. There was a lawsuit. <laughs> there was a lamentable lawsuit that a number of college athletes filed yeah. against EA Sports, which took the NCAA football game away from all of us for about ten years. I feel like most lawsuits lamentable. are lamentable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like how you said that. A lamentable lawsuit. Yeah. Hey, well, let's get into some let's get into some theology stuff and some some kind of the stuff that you guys are why not are all about. Yeah, uh, sure. I've I've got a question loaded oh, up. Yeah, all right. Uh, so Jarrett here has not yet invited John Calvin into his heart. 
<laughs> now, I, it's my sneaking suspicion because I... Is, but is John Calvin standing at the door knocking of... Oh! Yeah, so that's what I want to know. So He's been knocking for like 30 years. So oh, I'm... Man. And I'm uh, yeah. I'm an even more lost case because I'm a Reformed Baptist dispensationalist. Yeah, we'll pray for you, bro. Yeah, <laughs> we'll pray for me. So it's my sneaking suspicion that Dan, our podcast interviewer, considers Jared and I to be his mission field for going full Reformed. Oh, Dan. So yeah. we want to... not even sure he thinks we're Christian. <laughs> <laughs> We're not reformed enough. We're not even covenantal. So we want to give you guys oh an gosh. opportunity. What's your 30-second elevator pitch for going full capital R reformed? Oh, well, we're not even capital R reform, but... I mean, depending on who you talk to, you, I mean, one of your former guests would not consider us Yeah. Today. Anyways, to answer his question, I'll let you <laughs> what go you, Now, you go first, John. Okay. I want to defer to you, and then I'll just come in from the top turnbuckle if need be. Well, I think the reason... <laughs> so I grew up uh, independent fundamental Baptist, hardcore dispensationalist, graduated from the Master's Seminary, so very familiar with dispensationalism my entire yeah. life. And I think what really drew me over was understanding the the overarching theme and purpose of the Bible. And so you have a... You have this glorious creation in the beginning, and then obviously Adam destroys it, and then the whole world is in disarray, and and you don't even you don't even really get to go one sentence before God swoops in and says, "Okay, here's the plan of redemption." And so the whole story of the Bible is the unfolding plan of redemption based upon God's sovereign promises that will not fail. That's what won me over was that this was not in man's hands, because when it was, it completely failed. It's in God's hands. And every time man gets involved, God lets it like completely unravel and steps back in and goes, you're unfaithful. I'm faithful. And this is why we end up getting Christ, who raises, who is, you know, comes from the line of Judah, from the line of David. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think what's so refreshing about Reformed theology and specifically covenant theology is that it really succinctly puts the Bible in one glorious picture. And when you read it, you never have felt lost because you're like, well, we're, we're progressing along this glorious story of God restoring what Adam destroyed. This is why Jesus is called the second Adam. Yeah. So. When even the promise of a Redeemer in Genesis 3.15, effectively what you have in the rest of the entire Bible from there to the end of Revelation 22 is the unfolding of the accomplishment of that promise. Yeah. And a reformed covenantal perspective on the scripture highlights that in a way that I think is mm -hmm. pretty glorious and gives us a lot, a lot of assurance, a lot of peace, helps us to see how the whole scripture really is a testimony about Christ. Like Jesus meant what he said, you know, when he, when he says that if you believe Moses, you'd believe me, because <laughs> yeah. Moses wrote about me. Covenant theology helps us to see how that's especially true. When he says, too, that you search the scriptures, thinking that in them you find eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. It's true. Amen. That from, from the jump, Christ was the plan, and a Reformed covenantal perspective, I think, makes that very plain for the congregant to see. Yeah. I see. I love that, because my... And I would not disagree with any of that. I think yeah, that's right. all it's true. Beautiful. No, amen. Yeah, because you got, you've got yeah. a redemptive historical understanding of the Bible. Uh, right. And it's. I think the covenant idea is interesting, because then you carry it on into your eschatology as well, sure. right? You, mm -hmm. can, you can take it further. We just interviewed Kevin Sorbo this week about his new, his new movie, the Left Behind movie. And it was a really, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting movie. It's an interesting take on, yeah. it's probably of all the Left Behind movies, it might be the best one. It's, it's, it's one of those. Have you guys, seen, you watched it? I did, yeah. Okay. We, I, I watched it earlier this week. Did you guys screen it in that dope room? We, we did, we did. We screened it right over there and it was a lot of fun. But all this to say, you know, dispensational, pre-millennial, pre, what is it, pre-trib, all that yeah. kind of stuff ends up sort of getting played out with Covenant theology and you can so how would it so going further you, you kind of said it goes up to christ and christ looks back moving forward into revelation and eschatology like how would you guys how would the covenant theologian interpret that yeah i mean so i think that 
if we're doing theology well, our eschatology really is downstream from some higher level theological convictions. That's good. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So for us, I, I can at least speak for myself. I mean, we'll just go ahead and say all these things. I mean, um, may, as, may as well do it, right? So John and I being Reformed guys would be Amil in terms of our sure. eschatological position. Explain and, for our listeners what amillennialism is. Yeah, in brief, mm-hmm. we, we would not hold to a literal thousand years, but mm-hmm. we understand that scripture in terms of how prophecy works and how prophecy is fulfilled, there's a lot of typological language where mm-hmm. something means this in its own context, and it's significant in that context, but it's pointing to something other and greater that is to come, those kinds of things. There's metaphorical language used in the scripture in terms of how things will come to be fulfilled. And so an amillennial perspective, we believe that we are living in the last days, the era of the Messiah, and there's a number of different places in the scripture where we could go to look for that. But we do believe that Christ is coming back at the end of history, that the, the millennium in that sense, the era of the Christ has been inaugurated and will be consummated with his return when he will come and establish his kingdom and heaven will literally come down, mm-hmm. yeah. right? The new Jerusalem will come down and God will dwell with us in yeah. a redeemed heavens and a redeemed A earth. second coming, not a third coming. Correct. Like you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and I'll just to add to that, like when he says not literal... Sometimes people think, oh, then you don't take the Bible literally. Right. You know, I just watched a video of you doing some satire in there and you knocked it out of the park. Right. But you really didn't knock it out of the park. I was using what? An allegory or a metaphor. Yeah, Sometimes exactly. I get really confused. <laughs> yeah. You, you weren't knocking it out. That's right. But like when it says, <laughs> something. Jesus, you know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is, is it only a thousand hills? Correct. Or is sure. the point of it, he owns a lot? 199. Exactly. One thousand. So when we're talking about amillennialism right. and reform covenant theology, we're saying is that the Bible has purposes and intentions. Exactly. Like if you ever read the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel uses all kinds kinds of crazy images of pots and poop and hair and this and that. I mean, it's crazy what he does. And you're not meant, the reader would never take that literal, right? So then someone would say, well, you're not taking the text literal. And I said, we're taking it as it was literally intended. Right. Even yeah. as thinking of Ezekiel, right? I mean, we're going to geek out for a minute. You guys just stop us, okay? So like, <laughs> in the book of Ezekiel, like, yeah. to continue to think about how does the scripture speak? How does God reveal his plan through Christ. So in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37, you get a lot of language about how God is going to gather his people from the nations. He's going to bring them into their own land. Well, what is that talking about? Because he never brought all of his people back into the land of Judah. I mean, there's a language in the Minor Prophets as well about how the borders of the promised land are going to be expanded. Well, that, that never occurred. Geopolitically speaking, that never occurred before Christ came. That's right. So what's what's the ultimate point of all of that talk about bringing people, the people of God, into their own land? It's the new heavens and the new earth, mm-hmm. right? When da- when God says that I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Well, David's been dead for a few centuries by that point. Mm-hmm. So he's clearly talking about David's greater son who's coming. There will no longer be two kingdoms. There will be one kingdom, and there'll be one king, and it'll be David, my servant, who's going to be their king. So this is just one example. Yeah. kind of an object lesson in how we would understand Scripture and interpret it from a That's covenantal good. perspective yeah. and see how all of it is ultimately pointing to Christ and the plan of God to redeem sinners through Him. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be consummated one day in the new heavens yeah. and the new I'm earth. I'm preaching through Ezekiel right now, and I would say dispensations. <laughs> I like that sentence. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. That's We're going through it. We sentence. No, it's terms. not. We just uh, finished <laughs> chapter 11 this this last week. Yeah. And uh, what's, what's great about, like, 
you know, obviously I love all my dispensationalist brothers and we agree like Christ is king and he's ultimate and the gospel is supreme and, yeah. and those things are important. It's where we get down into like, well, you know, how do we, how are we dealing with this role? And, and it really is a, a hermeneutic. It's an understanding of science of like, how do you're going to interpret these things? And like a good example of this is um, when I was doing a lot of research for Ezekiel and even when I was transitioning into reformed theology, the... A lot of people understand that like, historically dispensationalists believe that the temple is going to be reinstituted and we're going to be doing uh, animal sacrifices, sacrifices again. Yeah. Yeah. The so, red heifer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So in the, the problem is that you know Hebrews says to us that, that Christ is the one for all sacrifices and that the sacrificial system is no longer needed. Right. And But the picture, I think, is glorious. Like if... Um, I don't ever think Ezekiel intended us to, to take it literal because... There are parts of it that dispensationalists will take literal, the rebuilding of the temple. The one part they won't take literal is the stream coming out of it. Mm -hmm. Because in, what happens is the temple is finished, the doors open up, and the stream starts coming out of it. Well, then read Ezekiel 47 and then read Revelation 22. Exactly. And then yeah. it gets to the it gets to the city gates and it turns into this river. And then it gets outside the city gates and it turns into this massive yes. like flood of water. And the tree of life is there. And it it the turns the desert the into the into the basically the new heavens. It's it's, it's a big metaphor. Of like from Christ, who is the ultimate temple, comes the stream of life, what's going to be the restoration of all things, right. not the sacrificial system. That wasn't the design of it. So anyways, those are just kind of a, some glimpses of like when you understand Scripture from a redemptive historic understanding, and I would say this one last thing, this is huge for, for Justin and I and all those who are Reformed. We, we would look at the Bible and say there's these two polar opposites, law and gospel, and like covenant of works and covenant of grace. And that really helps you keep clean, cut, where... Um, most false religions and legalism and bad theology is when you take grace and law and you mix them together. Mm. So Reformed theology me was probably the greatest example of dividing those two and keeping them separate. So the, I want to say this about Ezekiel because it's just very encouraging. Yeah. So right after Ezekiel 47 in the, in the language about the temple and the sanctuary and the, and the river flowing out of it, you compare that to Revelation 22, it's, it's great. But then the last sentence of Ezekiel's book is he talks about the name of the city will be. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Yeah. And he's writing from exile to a people who are in exile. And it's like, but the name of the city is going to be that the Lord is there. Like, mm -hmm. he's going to be with us. He's going to dwell with us. If I can jump on what John just said, if you guys allow us to do this. So, you, you know, why reform theology, right? So I think it, if this is more... I'm going to do the little rundown that we often do. What does it mean to be reformed? Because mm -hmm. a lot of times people think, especially in the evangelical world, to say I'm reformed means I'm a Calvinist. It means that I am Calvinistic in my soteriology, my understanding of salvation, mm -hmm. right? That, that God is sovereign in salvation. You've asked Calvin into your heart. Yeah. <laughs> right, he's gonna. He's persistent, irresistible no, grace. He's knocking all that stuff. Turn me right? into he's, a real jerk. He's gonna knock. Out. He's gonna keep knocking. It's okay. All so, the Calvinists I know. That's right. So, but for us to be reformed, what does it mean to be reformed? At Theocast, we'll say it this way. Right? The three C's it means we're covenantal, we're Calvinistic, and we're confessional. Okay. But then we'll also say we uphold a law and gospel distinction, and then we understand. Uh, and, and uphold the ordinary means of grace. And you would just, say the law is an expression of the gospel. A law is a so is we'll an talk expression about it. of you grace. You want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah, Absolutely. it's time. That's a great right, so question, law, and that's yeah. like extremely important because it does relate to revival. This is really important yes. stuff. So the law and the gospel, I agree with John. Uh, a lot of people think the distinction between the law and the gospel or a law and gospel distinction is a Lutheran category. Right. Right, but it is not. Like William Perkins was a Puritan and wrote verbatim that the distinction between the law and the gospel is a Reformed doctrine. It is not just a Lutheran one. There are a number of guys in the Reformed tradition who have written beautifully on the law and the gospel. John Calhoun comes to mind, and others. What what effectively we mean here is that the Scripture in the Old and New Testament has law and gospel. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So in the Old Testament, there's law and gospel. In the New Testament, there's law and gospel. Whenever we read in the scripture anywhere of what God requires of for righteousness, like do this for righteousness, that's law. Mm-hmm. Whenever we read of what God has done for us and gives us in the Lord Jesus that we receive by faith, that's gospel. That's right. right? And so that distinction is important. They're complementary with an E, right? Mm-hmm. The law and the gospel in God's economy of salvation, but they ought never be mixed. And we could do, we could riff on this for a while at some point. Maybe we'll circle back around to it yeah, and even talk about some passages yeah. I mean, where the, the Galatian law and the heresy collapse. is that is that exact same thing. So Paul was talking about you're mm-hmm. you're mixing now right. what it's Christ plus. done, what Christ has done for. So the, the, like the easiest way I always like to it's describe law and gospel through yeah. works. Yeah. Yep. So gospel is done because think about it. What's another, what's another word? Two words for gospel: good news, news right? Yep. So is is news potential or past? It's past, past right? You're, I'm not. I'm not. You, He's I'm not, the writer. That's right. I'm not reporting to you what might happen. Sorry, that's not news. Right. News is I'm reporting to you what has happened. Uh-huh. Right. So when we say good news, listen to what Jesus did. There's no potential there. It's all an announcement of an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. But the law is all potential. It's a do. Right. Do if you do this, then you will be accounted as a good person. You'll be counted as righteous. So this is why, like, one the greatest example we love to use is the rich young ruler that walks up to Jesus and he says, "What must I?" do to enter the kingdom. So Jesus doesn't give him the gospel. He goes, all right, if you want to know what you need to do, you need to keep the law. He never, you'll notice he never gives him grace. So on this passage, yeah. So the the guy asks, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments to which he says, well, I've done that. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus begins to turn the temperature up and dump the full weight of the law on that man's conscience. Mm -hmm. He says, all right, well, if you're going to be perfect, you still lack something. Right. And then he tells him three things. Sell everything you own, give it to the poor, follow me. It's like, okay, what, what's that about? Because a lot of times, here's what you hear. You want to talk about a collapsing of law and gospel, people then say, well, we need to surrender all for Christ in order to be saved. Yeah. It's like the, Wrong. the Platt book that you were talking about. Oh, brother, I knew, I, I was like, and we're about to start talking about radical and all kinds of other things, orange books and, and yeah, whatnot. a lot so, of orange books. So, but a lot of people say this, all right, so yeah. to surrender all for Christ is Pick the good news. Pick up your news, cross. Right? Yeah. And we need to at least be willing to surrender all for Christ in order to be saved. That is not the point that Christ is making. Mm-hmm. He says, sell everything you own, give it to the poor and follow me. Prove, like if you say you've kept the law, prove it. that means that you have loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you've loved your neighbor as yourself. Prove Prove it. Mm-hmm. Prove it by doing this. Perpetually, he, perfectly. He leaves dejected. The disciples go, they, they're, they're freaking out, right? Because Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to be saved. And the disciples lose their minds. Now, to us, this doesn't make sense because to us, we're like, oh yeah, you know, love of money and all that kind of thing. That's what we think. So like, oh yeah, what Jesus said makes perfect sense because if you love money, you're not going to go to heaven. But the disciples are wigging out. Why? Because as we think about covenant theology, Deuteronomy 28, right? Read Deuteronomy 28, covenant blessings for obedience to the law. Mm-hmm. It's material. In the old covenant paradigm, man, I'm going to bless was, you. That was I'm going to increase your, your crops yeah. and all this kind of, and your children and all these kinds of things. So yeah. the disciples are looking at a wealthy Adam. man, and the assumption there is this dude has a lot of wealth because he's been obedient. God's blessed him for his obedience. The so when Jesus literally says, say if he can't be saved. So exactly. So if he yeah. can't be, who can be saved, Jesus? Right. Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, he can be. Man, sick. bro, you just killed the punchline. <laughs> man, dang, Jared. Sorry. I mean, said, no, you know, we're good. But but who can be saved? And Jesus says, "Well, with man, it's impossible. It's impossible, yeah. right. But with God, it's possible." Mm-hmm. Right. No, Jesus said that, not John Calvin. Just to clarify. Yeah. Or Trump. Or Trump. Yeah. 
So a law and a gospel hermeneutic as well is a big reason why I would say that I'm reformed. Yeah. And now, it's really helpful. Go ahead. If someone wanted to catch conversations just like this with you two bouncing back and forth, if someone wanted conversations encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Listen to you. I know. Well, what, what do you <laughs> think the best podcast would be for them? Wow, I mean, you know, Welcome Theo, to Theo, Theocast is pretty great. These guys so. plug, in, plug in with the merch. Okay. Some people get a little upset because we do bounce back and forth and get a little fired up. We, and it's we, like, hey, if you don't like that, then maybe listen to something. We just got to be like a live audience for you two. Just yeah, there you go. You well, you, you literally picked a subject that we cannot stop talking about. So <laughs> I'll You did the back. old bait and switch. You told us we were going to talk about this thing. <laughs> then you start no. talking about law and gospel. And it's we'll like, get there. We I, I'll yeah. jump back to a couple no, no. things you were talking about. I'll end it with this statement. I think one of the greatest detriments that has happened to the uh, uh, the American church is a collapsing of the law into the gospel because people now think, oh, there's something. They'll say, no, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. But once they're saved, they go to the law to try and find favor with God. And that that has just created so much damage in people's psyche and, and spiritual walk that that's part of what Theocast is about, is helping rip the out of that context and help people understand there is you need to obey you need to not sin you need to resist that but that is a fruit of the gospel that is not the gospel so theodore beza who was a student of john calvin jared mm-hmm. wrote that same thing 500 years ago that mm-hmm. that the an, an ignorance of the distinction between the law and the gospel has done more damage to the church than anything else that's right and and i think john john is right i think theodore beza is right on that Wow, I've never had uh, on the same part Theodore Bezos. That's pretty, <laughs> yeah. That feels so, pretty good. Re- rewinding <laughs> yeah. a hair, because we talked eschatology briefly. Yeah. I mm. wanted to go back to Ezekiel bread. That stuff's bad. Yes, you ever read yeah. the instructions on that? <laughs> well, and, and it's funny because it's like, not only is it cooked over the poop, it's right, like, uh, yeah. the, the stuff tastes so bad because it's supposed to be judgment bread. Right. It's like they were mixing together all the grains because they didn't have enough food to make real bread. That's right. So whenever you eat it, oh, you're, you're enjoying oh, it's judgment. Got that. It's got that weird guy with the mustache on it, the drawn dude. I don't know if you remember. Well, this is where, like, Christians, like, if you want to take your cologne from the Old Testament, that would also be not one not one you would want to wear. Perhaps that's not the reason the Bible was written. <laughs> no, I don't think the Bible was written for <laughs> yeah. us to... Uh... We should take what was meant to be literal. Well, literally. so Ezekiel, it, it, wonderful that you're preaching through it verse yeah. by verse. Wow. Going back to eschatology just for a second. Yeah. John, you were raised... Correctly, dispensational. Yeah. <laughs> nah. By the grace of God, he was. Uh, so I By wanted to ask, grace. if we had left piles of clothes throughout the B office, would your heart have seized up? Would no. your roots have I, come back? Bro, I've been to the judgment house at a lot of Halloweens, girl. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> I grew up watching the, the original Left Behind series as a kid. Yeah. Wait, so. the original Left Behind or, or A Thief in the Night? Thief in the night, oh. and you'll be left behind. Bro, we yeah. are the same age. The sun has come, oh, and you've <laughs> Do you remember? Dude, Kevin Max did that. <sighs> Life was filled with guns and war. Remember that, dude? Oh, beautiful. Oh, so There's no time. Dude, th- those shows to this day, they're creepy. Those ones are like the old um, original Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Like those the George Romero, scene, yeah, those George Romero movies, the sixteen millimeter, like horror movies that oh, yeah. he made. It's really similar yeah. in in quality and style and feel. So it is terrifying. Well, it's this, still scary, right? And see, and again, this is part of like and the, the fashion gospel. was terrible. You're using fear, the yeah. fear of oh, I might get left behind. Right. Whereas. Um, which again, that comes from revivalism, and we can get into that. But uh, I, I can. There are. We did an episode on 
oh, leaving dispensationalism or something I couldn't remember, but we had talked about the second coming of Christ, and we had a lot of comments in our YouTube about people saying that they would legitimately go to bed at night afraid that they the Christ would come, and yeah. because they hadn't obeyed enough, that they were going to get left behind. Yeah. And it's it's a fear-based, not all dispensationalists are like that, so. <laughs> no. But I grew up in that fear-based where you better obey, you better do what's right, because you could get left behind, which I'm like, wait a minute, am I either saved by Christ or mm-hmm. am I not? Like, how does this work? Am I, am I saved by my goodness or am I saved by Christ? Which one is it? I grew up Nazarene. Oh, interesting. And so my grandfather was a Nazarene evangelist, and mm. every Sunday the entire youth group was down confessing their sins yeah. at the altar yeah. because we were afraid yes. that we were going to lose our salvation, yeah. first of all, or we might get left behind if Jesus came back because yeah. it was quite apparent that he was going to in the you know 90s or whenever. That's right. Altar and call. So, Anxious bitch. Yeah, and we did it all Bible the time. Is... But then there are some positive things, and, I, and what you guys are saying about the law and the gospel, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Like, yeah. that's something that I'm not a... Can I'm, I try to make I'm you disagree? against that. Yeah, please, please, please. So I'll, set the grenade, I'll set the grenade on the table and pull the pin. I'm not a Nazarene anymore. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. I, I went to a that, Calvinist that's, that's been clear to me school. today. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Anyway. In our conversations. Yeah, yeah. 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 Tell no, me. What an yeah. interesting background. Now, so one way we'll put it, not trying to be shock jocks, not even trying to be provocateurs, but saying what we believe to be true from Scripture. The gospel contains nothing in it whatsoever that we are to do. So even a re, even a response. Now we is not no, but the response to the gospel to is not the gospel. Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah. if gospel, you remember how do you how do you like you, you receive what Christ receive has done news. by faith. That's true. By receive news. That's true. Yeah. But the gospel is completely mm-hmm. and only about what Christ has done. Yes, I well so, I agree with right? that. And so we'll say a lot of times like the law is due, the gospel is done, right? Uh-huh. That or the law says do this and live. Sure. The gospel says Jesus has done it, now live in him. Mm. Right. And it's so yeah. we receive, we're completely passive in it. We receive the work of Christ that he has accomplished on our behalf. And then, you know, there's uses of the law that we could talk about another time, even for the Christian. Yeah. But they but the law no longer condemns us. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a primer on rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. So we're there in the revivalism right. segment of our podcast, so let's go ahead and keep talking about it, because we obviously agree with what you just said. Okay. What about revivalism or pietism? Is in conflict with what you just said. How long? How long do we have? <laughs> just keep going, dude. Yeah. No, I don't. Dis- I, I just say that too. Yeah. I don't disagree with any of that. That's good. Yeah. It was. Beautiful. I think the language that we we tend to use. It, well, I'm, I don't even know what background I am anymore. It's a, sure. it's a pedigree that's yeah. kind of complicated. It's a mixed bag, sure. As yeah. most of us are, bro. There's a little bit of revivalism in there. There's, I mean, Keswick Convention stuff mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got, I was an AG pastor for a while. Wow. Now mm-hmm. I'm a Baptist, like, and I, w- I went to a Reformed high school. Yeah. And so it's this combination of things, but the way that it is expressed is by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling power of the resurrected Christ in you, as you walk in obedience mm-hmm. to the Spirit, the law is accomplished through what Christ does in and through you. It doesn't mean that you did anything to receive your salvation. 
you receive it by faith because of what Jesus has done. But then the indwelling life of Christ, the abundant life, is the life of the Spirit, like in Romans 8. Sure. And so that's kind of the way I would describe it, but I don't know that it's the same language that you would use. I'll pick up on what you just said for a minute. I think for for us as Reformed guys, whenever even in in Romans um, 8, 3, and 4, where Paul writes that God did what the flesh, you know, weakened by sin could never do right. in sending Jesus to die so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Our understanding there is that he is referencing the active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law. So Jesus, his life matters just like his death matters, yeah. right? Because he lived in perfect, in perfect accord with the law every moment that he was alive. And so... His obedience is counted to us. His righteousness is counted to us. We receive that by faith. So like the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 60, you know, how are you righteous before God? You know, it's, it's completely by faith in Jesus Christ. Though I have broken all of God's commands and never kept a single one of them and am still inclined toward all evil, God, out of sheer mercy and grace, accounts to me the perfect holiness, righteousness, and satisfaction of Christ. Mm-hmm. So that it is as though I've never sinned or been a sinner, and it is as though I was as perfectly obedient as Christ has been obedient for me. Can we take right? up an offering or say? Yeah. And, yeah. and so, <laughs> but, but to your answer, so donate online. <laughs> yes, justification, but then union with Christ. Union so I want to go to Christ. sanctification. So we receive the active obedience of Christ, right? right? And and we re- and obviously He's made satisfaction for our sins, and He is the guarantee of our bodily resurrection. Right. And then we are united <laughs> to Him by faith, right? And being united to Christ, we are sanctified. Hmm. And so Romans 6, Paul, you're saying clearly, you've just talked about the fact that when we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. You've just talked about how, you know, we are counted righteous because of Christ and that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So you're saying we should just sin now, right? Right. By no means, By he no says. Means. But notice right. that he doesn't go to the law. He says, he doesn't say, here's what the law says. He says, by no means, you've been united to Jesus. You've been baptized That's into right. Christ, right? And now you... You've been set free from the tyranny of sin. You are now not under the law, but under grace, and you've become obedient from the heart. That's right. And so that's how we talk about sanctification. Inside yeah. out versus outside sure. that's right. in. I sure. mean, those are no, easy, the law has categories. been fulfilled for us in Christ, and then we seek to live in conformity to the law. That's right. Because we can and because we want to now. That's right. And then the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the Spirit right. start to come out. Exactly. Right. That He works in us. It's, right. it's character and it's action, right? It's the will and, to, and the action. Anyway. I've talked a long time, John. No, so no you're John, good. I'm sorry. I'm no. just tracking. Are you, yeah, no. We're riffing. Think... I'm about to cry. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> feel the presence of God. Well, there you go. You anyway, heard go ahead. No, I was going to say, when he says from the heart, th- that's probably one of the things that changed in me in my preaching you know, I started preaching as, as early. I was doing junior church when I was like 16. And so I had some pretty good fire and brimstones for we the 11 year olds. Exactly. Oh, yeah. But what's interesting is that the motivation for loving and serving God. Mm-hmm. So part of revivalism, um, kind of backing up, there was a shift. You know, these tent meetings were originally designed by Presbyterians and they were they're really designed for t- taking communion. Mm-hmm. And they started shifting. And you had these guys who were well. Uh, spoken, who who were very like just just good actors, just to be frank, and you know guys like Finney who could come in and and is just dynamic in what he was doing, but Finney but believed that salvation <clears throat> wasn't a supernatural act as far as where the Holy Spirit had to come and open our eyes. Is that that he believed that that God kind of brought everybody to a point, and it was he could basically logic and manipulate someone's emotion into believing, and so. <clears throat> 
one of the greatest ways to do that is fear, right? We use this as, as parents, if you, <laughs> you know, like we, we use fear tactics to tell our, to get our kids to do what they need to do. But I have an 18 year old, 16 year old, 14 year old. Guess what doesn't work so much anymore? <laughs> your tactics yeah. don't work, right? Cause they're like, dad, you're, you're about as big as I am. I can take you. Like, probably can, <laughs> you know? So what's interesting is that when you listen to the, the glorious, uh, gospel of Paul, and where he, all of them in the New Testament, even going back to when Christ talks about like our motivation of love, or First John, when he says we love. Why? Because we're afraid if we don't, we'll die. No, he says we love because he first loved us. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's love and grace that becomes our motivation, and that is what's so different. So revivalism, w- there was a lot of hellfire preaching, which I think is you know we need to preach the law to its fullest extent. You need to be afraid of being under the law as a sinner. But what motivates you to then obey is not fear. It has to be faith in the gospel. And that's the thing that's so different between, like, during the Reformation, that's what was being reclaimed. It was being reclaimed was assurance. Assurance was lost, because assurance was, if I did these seven sacraments, and if I did this faithfully, then I could be assured God is good with me. Well, not even really. You'd maybe yeah, go to purgatory. Yeah, but, yeah you'd you still know, have to go to purgatory. You'd have to be purged of less, perhaps. That's yeah. right. And then what was great about the Reformation was the the, rec- the reclaiming of assurance, and the motivation for obedience was not based upon what might happen to me. It was based upon what had been done. Yeah. I mean, when you read Romans eight, when it says nothing can separate you from the love of God, you have to step back and go, did Paul mean that? But not really. Right. You know. <laughs> or we've been given a spirit of adoption. That's right. You know, we yeah. by which we cover cry out the Father. We've not been given a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery. That's right. Right. So sin is slavery, and uh, I love how Second Peter says this. He says that Second Peter one. He gives this list of qualities that all of us would love to be right: grace and kind and, and merciful and all of that. But then he says, if these are not true about you and increasing, you know what he doesn't use? He doesn't use a fear tactic. He says you have forgotten you've been cleansed from your former sins. He goes back to grace, right? And then he says, you what you don't understand is that if grace isn't motivating to obey, you're an ineffective and unfruitful soldier for Christ is what you are. So my motivation is I want to honor God and I want to be effective in spreading the light of the kingdom because I am safe in his arms as an adopted child. That's what the revivalism flipped on its head. Yeah. And revivalism, just to describe it briefly, <clears throat> is uh, here are the things that characterize it, right? You have uh, a situation where, and so I'm going to say something. This is controversial, but we're on the we're on the Babylon Bee, so why not? Do whatever um, you want. So, <laughs> as we read historically, uh, most people, uh, most evangelicals, most serious minded evangelicals, Calvinistic evangelicals, to use all those buzzwords, would be very critical, rightly so, of the Second Great Awakening, as it's known. Would be critical as well of the great revivals in the latter part of the 19th century, but they would probably be pretty sympathetic toward and even speak positively of the first Great Awakening, which occurred in the 18th century. Big names associated with that would be George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, mm-hmm. right? depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on. And uh, for us, as we, as confessional Protestants, as confessional Baptists, as we read history, we would say that the first Great Awakening, as it's known, while its soteriology was more sound, its its doctrine was more yeah, sound Whitfield in terms of the preaching, solid. right? Yeah. Uh, well, there still are concerns with it, because revivalism removes the center of the Christian life from the local assembly and puts it outside the church. It's extra-ecclesiastical in that sense. You're going, you know, the Christian life is no longer about ordinary, like ordinary means of showing up and living life in the community of the church. We're going to go outside of that. We're going to listen to a fiery preacher. 
it becomes about my own personal experience of the divine. My right? dedication. It, be, it becomes about my own personal fervor, intensity, all of that stuff. It's the conversion moment. It's the transformation of life thereafter, right? Well, I'll just interject. You're, you're talking about going down the aisle? Oh, yeah. yeah. That was all invented during revivalism. Yeah, yeah, that's that Second Great Awakening, Finney, New Measures. Yeah, that's that. Finney. So, but even for us, as we look, we want to back it up even further and say that while the, the preaching, the doctrine, the soteriology was better in the First Great Awakening, there are still concerns as churchmen for yeah. us because it changed sort of the locus of the Christian life, the resting heart rate of the Christian life changed. And I think this is true. You look at evangelicalism. Most evangelicals today don't know how to think about the Christian life apart from this kind of revivalistic paradigm of conversion and transformation of life and personal individualistic, fervor, like individual dedication, Bible reading and, discipline. Yeah. That is really what makes it go. Mm -hmm. yeah. Whereas for us, we're going to say, yes, those things matter. Your personal, your personal relationship with Christ, even to use that language, even though we don't necessarily always love that, but to say that your personal life matters is obviously true. Mm -hmm. But then what is it that is the lifeblood of the Christian life? Mm -hmm. First of all, it's what Christ has accomplished that we receive, and it's life, of ordinary life in the community of the local church, mm -hmm. where we gather weekly to receive from Christ in the Word, to receive from Christ in His table, to sing and to pray, to be built up in the faith together, like Paul writes in Ephesians 4. Mm -hmm. And for us, at least from our perspective, we're not quite sure that revivalism squares with that. So I've, I've got a question about all this, because it's, it's yeah. encouraging. I think of Jonathan Edwards, you know, you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God, you're a spider mm -hmm. on a thin spider web above the flames, and then when you are born again, you adopt all Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, and it's sure. just, yeah. oh, that's a lot of homework. It's yeah, like it Jesus is. said, come to me, ye who are weary and heavy yeah. laden, and I will give you homework. Right, and I'll give you more. Come to me, ye who are weary Bible and heavy verses. laden, and I will give you more to do. So give you lots of work. Here's my question, does revivalism lead to pietism? Well, yeah, do you want me to answer that? You sure? What's that? Do you want to go? Or do you want me to go? What do you want to do? I'll let you go, and I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback off you. I'm going to say this briefly <laughs> and then let John riff. So historically, pietism came first. That's right. So pietism is a movement that really begins in the, I mean, pointedly in the 17th century, and it comes from German Lutheranism, of all places. Interesting. Uh, so that, it precedes revivalism in history. We would say the two are very much related. And pietism and revivalism really go together in terms of what we would call evangelical Christianity. Like evangelicalism is a pietistic and revivalistic movement. And that's not to be pejorative. Yeah. It's just to, to speak with clarity. But John, go. Yeah. So the word pietism, so like uh, the word piety is great. All four of us in here, we want to be pious. We want to be pious. And what that means is we are in our actions, thought, word, and deed, we're reflecting the nature and person of God. And amen. we're all like, amen. Like our wives would all love that. Amen. Piety is great. Is part of the Reformed tradition. It's part of all Christian tradition. It's it's a wonderful thing. Pietism is bad. And it's the work of the spirit too. That's right. Piety is. Yeah. Sometimes we'd even That's say right. hyper pietism is hyper piety. Whereas can you say, well, can you have too much of a good thing? And yes, in that when there's a purpose in place for your good works, but the Christian life is not about your good works. And pietism really becomes very introspective. It's all about what you're doing for God on a constant basis, and it's almost a measuring stick where you're measuring yourself, how well am I doing? And the the problem with pietism, specifically as relates to connecting to revivalism, is they started to create measures like not drinking alcohol or not going to a movie house, which is a weird thing of saying a movie house. Um, but, <laughs> the picture but it, house. Right. Seems but Christianity like became talkies. more about what you weren't doing 
than who you were serving, right? So I know I'm a good Christian because I don't smoke, drink, or go with girls who do, right? All of that kind of stuff, where uh, pietism is very much focused inward, and you're always waking up every day, have I done enough? Am I doing? What am I doing? And it's, the answer to that question is most certainly no. No, because uh, let me ask you this question. I haven't done enough. No. Yeah, the, the people say, well, we, we need to obey. And I'm like, yes, we need to obey. But my, my next question is, why? According to Scripture, yep. why do you obey? Pietism or revivalism is, well, that, that, that proves that you're a believer. That's why you obey. That's not what Scripture says. No. That's not why you obey. Or they might say that it makes you righteous before God. Yeah, but yeah. You're, if, you're, if you want, and this is where the question comes, is how many good works must you do in order for God to accept you righteous or to cancel out who you were? God accepts you as righteous because he accepts you in Christ. In Christ. That's right. That's right. So pietism has you focus yeah. in on your works, saying, well, I'm a good person because I do these things which is completely opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you're accepted because God adopted you and he gave you Christ's righteousness. Now, because that's true, go obey. Imputed. So, right. Imputed, right. That's right. That's a bit, listen to you using those big right. words. Come on, man. All that jargon. That <laughs> that you know, I just wanted to throw it out there. That's, we appreciate yeah, it. I, mean, I, I, I know we're broad brushing and we're kind of like <laughs> rushing through this, but pietism is, it can be seen almost anywhere where... You know, I, I've grown up listening to all kinds of sermons, and they sound like this, like, oh, yeah, we believe, um, we believe in the gospel, and we believe they're saved by grace. And then it's kind of like, that's the first step. We don't need that really anymore. That's step one. Now let's talk about the real meat and bones of the Christian life. And the meat and bones of the Christian life is all of these obligations that are put upon you. And if you don't meet these obligations, right. you really you're should probably, question. You're probably not legitimate. You're probably I, not legitimate. The, the emphasis of pietism, it's always pointing the Christian back to himself somehow, yeah. right? Rather than us always being pointed outside of ourselves, to, to use Reformation language, extra nos, mm-hmm. right? Outside of us. Rather than being pointed outside of ourselves to Christ, who is always our righteousness in the ground of our standing before God, we're often pointed back in on ourselves. Yeah. How, how obedient have I been? You how know, faithful have I been? How disciplined have I been? How, how are my affections? And it's effectively a prove-yourself kind of theology. I wonder, okay, I don't know how to... I don't, in my own personal life, mm-hmm. if I'm being really honest with you... So it's good to be honest. I do. Well, it is good to be honest. We're Christians, man. I, Let's be I honest. Mean, I mean, come on. I don't think I know how to separate those things. Yeah. And, like, and it's a difficult... Gym, it's like Brother, take mental, a number and get in line. It's now. a mental I mean, you, gymnastics. I don't know how to not be aware... Because I know Paul, okay, Paul in the script, he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself at one point. And I'm just like, I wish that I was like that, but I'm constantly like, no, no, that wasn't a good motive. Nah, that was really a bad thought. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Even if I had some good moments during the day, I get to the end of the day, and you know what all I can think about are? The dumb and stupid things that I said or did. Yeah, Like, I can't focus on anything. Other than that stuff. Yeah. Well, this is what... Other than... Yeah. This but is, I also but, know mentally that Christ has done right. all this. That's right. And What's so. the antidote? Like, what you're describing <laughs> is what all of us feel in yeah. various ways. I mean, Martin Luther was this to a yeah. to the nines, right? And the Lord More used him mightily. Right? <laughs> yeah, the, the Lord yeah. used him mightily. I do too. <laughs> right. And so what's the antidote, though? The antidote... Yeah. I, brother, I promise you, it won't be found anywhere in you. No, the right. antidote is exactly. only Christ for you. Right, it's His righteousness. Right, it's His atoning work. That's right. And it's the question is: is what He did enough? That's right. It is, Amen. and it is enough. Yeah. Right. Well, and this, so, so this goes that's back. The, that's where we pillow our heads. Yeah. Yes. So yes. there's the, there's the contrast. Like um, revivalism was really kicking back against dead orthodoxy and and maybe even liberalism at the same time too. Where later on, yeah. yeah, later on in the second one. 
But in the first one, it's like, oh, this is all dead. The churches are dead. And so they wanted to kind of spark this new energy. And so it was, let's get rid of anything that was old, anything that had related that could seem like Catholic, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, and let's do these new measures. It became iconoclasts in every area. <laughs> Right. Started destroying everything. That's right. I know it's true. So but what, you, ends, but what yeah. ends up happening here is that there's this massive focus on the individual's act. In other words, all right, you're struggling here. Here's what you need to do. Versus when you read scripture, it removes this individualism. You're a part of Christ, who is a part of this body, who He puts you into this body underneath these elders, right. underneath the gospel. So it's interesting how Jesus stops and He looks at Peter and He goes, "Peter, do you love me?" feed my sheep, right? This this concept of, of individualism, which is hyper-American, mm-hmm. like I can do this on my own. Christ says, first of all, you couldn't save yourself on your own. Second of all, you can't sanctify yourself on your own. And number three, you can't stay encouraged on your own. I'm going to put you in a body. Right. That body's going to be there to strengthen and care for you. You're going to hear the word preached. You're going to take communion. And what that's going to do, and you're going to pray. These are the three graces that God gives us, right? The means of grace. And what that does is it gives us a reminder, it gives us a cleansing, and it gives us strength. You know, it's interesting, um, you know, before we started, we prayed, and one of the things that has impacted me about prayer is that in Hebrews when he says, um, boldly, right, as a dirty, wretched, guilty sinner, boldly run into my throne room and ask for mercy and grace when you need it. And I think to myself, I don't know of a time when I don't need it, right? That's living life on grace and mercy versus I'm going to use the law and prove to God and everybody else I deserve to be his child. And it's like, you can't use the law to do that. That's revivalism, that's pietism, if you want like the exact opposite of the two. So this is why to us, the preaching of the word in the gathered church is paramount because that's what scripture emphasizes versus you being alone with your Bible, which is not a bad thing, and, and you should engage in God's Word. Yeah. But it's it's not the primary diet that God has designed. This is why he says, consider daily how to build one another up that you aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you and your thoughts, me and my thoughts, yeah. we get alone, and I'm like, man, I am... A, I am horrible. Now, or you justify sin, and before you know it, yeah, you have been deceived and deluded into thinking that what you're doing is eh, not that bad and all this. But this is why we need the church. I'm yeah. frustrated because I, the older I get and the more that I've been in relationship with people that have walked away from Christ, mm. um, I take more responsibility for those things because I wasn't there for them at certain times. Mm. I haven't been there to encourage them towards Christ or, or you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So just like that verse... So I, I actually feel more responsible for people than I ever have, yeah. the more that I understand this concept. Yeah. yeah. Church is, yeah. What's interesting is that the church is powerful mm-hmm. when the church is doing, as you know, when it says, uh, I love when Paul says, when the church functions as it should, yeah. it produces mm-hmm. really strong Christians. Yeah, that's, that's Ephesians 4, 15, yeah. 16. That's Whereas true. the message today is, if you do these right. five things... Mm-hmm. Right. You'll be a strong Christian. Right. And those five things have nothing That's to do not with the church. Right. And your individual life is driven by the corporate, which is the exact opposite of what we've been programmed to think. I mean, as American Christians, right. we think that the private makes me useful in the corporate setting. Like my private devotional life makes me useful in the corporate setting. The corporate thing is maybe a supplement. Whereas in reality, biblically, the corporate setting is your lifeline. I mean, that's, that is where God uniquely meets with us, sustains, strengthens, imparts faith, right? And then the private life is driven by 
and propelled and powered by that corporate reality. So that's one of your distinctives, like means of grace, Correct. the preaching of the word. Correct. That we're broadening administration of the sacraments, etc. So we're broadening right. the conversation a bit back to all the things that are distinct about reformed churches. And yeah. you know, I think of Hebrews ten twenty five, do not yes. forsake the assembling. That's right. That's a good to do verse. But then you think of other verses that that talk about the accountability that comes sure. with being in a body. And then yeah, later Hebrews in 13. Hebrews, sure. Hebrews 13, it says, let your let your elders rule over you yeah. with joy and not yeah. with grieving. Don't exasperate That won't them. benefit anybody. Yeah. Don't right. give them exactly. gray hairs and mess up their 18... Yeah, uh, the verse starts, submit to your submit elders, to your elders. for they watch over your soul. So I wanted to ask yeah. about additional... <laughs> I wanted to ask about additional distinctives of being reformed. Um, what about... I mean, we're now it's going to go back to humor, at least for a bit. Right? Uh, we're good with that. So it's second, good co- so second commandment. And then I want to talk about how politics and social stuff is related to revivalism in a minute. <laughs> so second, so com- just just throwing them out there. Snap. So second commandment violations is a fun direction to go oh, in because uh, these guys are not a fan of the chosen. So I've got a question for nah. you. If, we got shot at for that. If yeah. if a grandmother has just... a picture of Obi Wan Kenobi on her fridge and she thinks it's Jesus. Is that a second commandment violation? <laughs> is she praying to him? <laughs> <laughs> He's there in his robe. It's Ewan McGregor looking peaceful. Yeah, the, the, the was it the Seventh Day Adventist? I think they have a picture of Jesus that looks like Obi Wan. Oh, one hundred percent. I know the one. You know what I'm talking about? I've seen that one. <laughs> I saw it and I was like, that's kind of so. So what about the chosen? What about second that's commandment Ewan violation? Oh, <laughs> uh, so we just we're gonna go in on. The I mean, you could go listen to the episode we yeah. did, but in the short, so, go, so. yeah. So here's the deal. It's our biggest concern with the chosen, the second commandment violation really was a peripheral concern for us. Yeah. Now, if you talk to some of our PNR guys, like friends, Presbyterian Reform guys, they oh, may say otherwise. Two CV, yeah, two CV, <laughs> you know, second commandment violation, which we would agree. Yeah. We, we ought not make images of the Lord, uh-huh. our God, or images of anything. So we think we should be careful in that. But our real concern with the chosen is this, this quest, as Scott Clark would say, this quest for illegitimate religious experience, meaning that there is a quest that many of us are on to have this kind of personal experience of the divine and to have a personal experience of Christ that is outside of what is revealed to us in the scripture. Mm-hmm. So for it, it, our question, I think that we would, we would at least throw out there to people is to say that, all right, is what God has given us in the Scripture sufficient for us to come to a saving knowledge and an understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, His person and His work, right? So that's important. And then I think we'll just go ahead and say this here. I mean, we got a number of emails of all kinds after we did that Chosen episode, but there were some that really hit the nail on the head of what we were trying to communicate. It's like we badmouthed somebody's grandma, man. It was weird. <laughs> but but here's the deal. We, we had a lot of people say... Like there was one person, and I'm going to be very general so as not to give this any identity away, but this lady writes to us and says, I have a friend who is the wife of an Anglican minister, and she said to me recently that I love the chosen, and whenever I pray, I think about Jesus like he's depicted in the chosen, and when I get to heaven, if he is not like that... Yeah. I'm going to be disappointed. You better not be Obi Wan. Yeah. All right. So that's the issue that I think no, we were 100%. trying to highlight is people. Id- people idolize Jonathan Rumi. They. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. Well, it's and, true. and there's a lot of. We, other and we just crime. need to be thoughtful. That's yeah. an issue. There's a lot of we just other. Need to be thoughtful. There's a lot of other, like people are like, oh, it really helps with me, you know, relate to the humanity of Christ, and I'm like, well. That that just means that whoever you're t- sitting underneath, as far as teaching, is, is failing you because the <laughs> right. Paul says that the the word of God is sufficient to give you everything you need to know about Christ. 
Isn't like, that another issue, though, like that pastors are failing their congregations? Oh, yeah, I think well, so. Well, and I, I mean, I think a lot of pastors, and we're just going to go ahead and say it all, I think a lot of pastors, um, <laughs> under, the guise, under the guise of Christ-centered preaching, are not doing that. No. They're, they're not preaching Christ to their hearers. Like, wh- why does everybody that's love... controversial. Why, why does everybody... <laughs> yeah. But why does everybody love Charles Spurgeon? Yeah. Everybody loves, like Spar- was, everybody uh, loves yeah. Spurgeon because the man relentlessly yeah. preached Christ yeah. to the hearts and minds of his people every single Lord's Day. And he smoked a heck of a lot. He did. <laughs> so, to the glory of God. But a lot of guys now that love six Spurgeon... if cigars in my mouth at one time, I would do it. What? Then he's like a chimney. Yeah. Is, a that, is that a though, real quote? Yeah, I think so. I think so, I, somebody said it recently. They were like, yeah, somebody asked him if he smoked too much. He said... Or how much smoking was yeah. too much. And he said, well, if I could fit six of them in my mouth at once, I would do Yeah, it. so for me, I, I'd not say... I feel and then like he this. died when he was like 50 58, yeah, 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 he's 56, <laughs> yeah, so, eight. I don't think it was... related. He didn't have the best of health his whole life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it was... The he wasn't aficionado. But, uh, <laughs> him and R.C. Sproul, baby. <laughs> I know that I fail in doing this. We all strive to do it. We fail in doing it. But sometimes guys, like from the, the circles that I hail from, there's always this question in preaching about, all right, let's talk about application in preaching. And I'm all for application, but the primary application that I seek to do every Lord's Day is to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to the hearts and minds of the people that are there, and to give them Jesus, right? And so I think that one of the deficiencies in many churches in our day, Jarrett, to your point, is, and there's a reason why people are seeking for something other, is because often when we go to church, the gospel's assumed, Christ is a footnote, Right, it's like, oh yeah, you know, we got the gospel, you know, right? It and and now we're going to talk about the real stuff of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk, and you know, and package it however you want. Yeah, Maybe it's nice in the mega church seeker sensitive movement, and we're going to talk about you know the seven steps to better finances and a better marriage. But do it in the serious minded evangelical context where it's about how to be a more godly person. Now, right? you guys are your main contention is that law sneaks back in; it's very surreptitious. Um, but that gospel is entirely distinct. So I, I, I had a question. There's a, a verse about law. I, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which gospel does this verse come from where Jesus says, I am the law of Moses? Uh-huh. Oh, that's a, that's a <laughs> quote from The Chosen. <laughs> I see what you did there, Sam. Which which one? Quote, I see what you did. I cannot place it. He, he, I was yeah, going to say, that's and, not a And it's not a direct quote. That might come from like the New Living Translation. Exactly. It's also well, not, this, a, it's not a direct quote from <laughs> the no. Nephi. And this goes back to even to the, I mean, other problems with The Chosen is as far as like your actor is Catholic, you're, you got, there's just so much issues going Papist. on in there. Uh, oh, well, it's like, I don't even so much care about the Mormonism and the Catholicism. I care about some of these other things. Well, but, hey, I want so to hear, so let me just push now, back Jesus a little Jesus did say that he came to fulfill the law. Fulfill the that's law. Right. He did, exactly. That's what, that was my pushback now, I, originally. But I press. think when it comes to... We're sitting down. We when it, I know, we could. Yeah, it's like we, we can roll if you want to. I did you jujitsu, anyone? We could do that later. <laughs> I just started. Like you did. I, I did just too. Started. Like this week. Literally, well, I'm two weeks ago. You guys well, don't I, was, I did it for two years ago. We got to talk about Look it Look at God, Go. man. Look all at right. God. All so all this to say, all this to say, you could still kick one, but... No, but... Yeah. I push back on times in times in history, right? Those are some big guns. <laughs> big guns. Um, no, but in, sometimes in history, when when the, the the pastors of churches are failing and not doing this thing where they're preaching Christ from the pulpit, um, as a person who creates stories and narratives, yeah. and as a person who makes, you know, the chosen functions in a way for the people that don't like iconoclize or whatever. 
Jonathan Rumi, the people that don't pray to him, um, can it be a tool with which the Holy Spirit uses to point them back to Jesus? So they're like, oh, is that really in there? And they go back and they read the word and then they're actually revealed who Jesus really is. And, you know, I don't know, some of the artistic license that they've taken uh, has just been for narrative device, you know? Like it's not so much that they're trying to add anything theologically. They're just trying to point, really the heart of somebody like a Dallas Jenkins is to point people to Christ. We interviewed him here. Mm. And uh, and Jonathan Rumi, as, as Catholic as he is, like he really, his motive is to just reveal Jesus. He's like, all I care about is Jesus. You know, he's not, he never talks about Mary or anything like that. He, sure, just, sure. he goes yeah. after Jesus. Except for he leads people in the rosary. And well, he does do that, well, yes, which I don't know if <laughs> that's... just praying you know, to Mary. Right, right, that's and so, true. And so yeah, I, I'll right. say, I mean... I, we're not trying to be yeah. stodgy. We're not trying to be contrarian. The reason I, we did that podcast is because we I don't know how many questions we got about it. So it's yeah. like, fine, let's talk about it. Yeah, it's not necessarily it. our normal yeah. fare. But I think, you know, if I'm going to have this dialogue, I'm probably going to answer your question with a question, which can be frustrating. No, no. Uh, but That's it's, what Jesus it's, but did. It's fair mm-hmm. to do, right? So, But with normal people. I would ask this. Crazy. So uh, forget the chosen. <laughs> <laughs> with normal people. So true. <laughs> Uh, with forget the chosen for a minute. Let's let's rewind the clock twenty years to the Passion of the Christ. All right. So here's another here's another situation where Jesus right. gets Gibson in an interview. He's doing right. he's doing the second one. So what what scenes? So I saw the I have not watched the Chosen, admittedly. All right. So but I have uh-huh. I, I did go see the Passion. I mean, this was a different era in my life, and. Um, what are the scenes that people remember outside of the gruesomeness of the crucifixion? The scenes that people remember are often two of them that yeah. are often brought up to me are Jesus making making a table. Uh, he's in the carpenter shop and he has this sweet interaction with Mary. Yeah. Okay. And his mom. Then, and that's that's white space, right? That's artistic yeah. liberty. Then the other one is when he's on the road, he's literally carrying the crossbeam to, to Calvary, and he stumbles, and Mary is right there. Right. And he looks at her and he says, behold, I'm making all things new. Now, we're not told in Scripture that Mary was there. Right. We're told she looked on from a distance. And behold, I'm making all things new is in the book of Revelation. That's right. So my, my, my point in raising that, what were the most impactful moments on people outside of the gruesomeness of the crucifixion with the passion of Christ, are two things that are not, one is not found in Scripture at all. The other is actually a manipulation of Scripture. Right, and these are the things that people are just gripped in their person by to say, "Man, look at Jesus, look at my Savior." And it's like I, I want to feel things for Christ. I want my affection stirred for Christ. Yeah. I just want to make sure that they're being stirred by things that are legitimate. And that would be my pause. You know, it's interesting. I don't you remember know? either of those scenes. Well, then maybe and yeah. Is it are those like quantitatively? Those are the ones that people remember. I mean, I've not, I, there's no data out there. That says, I just yeah. know in my own, it's more anecdotal, personal interactions. Personal interactions. I just people. wonder, yeah, it's interesting because you tell those stories, you have to take some license because sure. just to take it, you know, scripture. Yeah. Because God only gave us so much. Yeah. Right. And I do wonder, yeah, and I, I, the question is whether or not it's a useful thing or if it's a good thing for us to tell those stories, right. which I, I mean, the the church has been doing that for years, the passion sure. plays from the very beginning sure. to an illiterate, to an Ill- illiterate population. You had to do stuff like that. And people are biblically illiterate now, so they're sure. going to believe anything we put so, out there. So, so yeah, there's a I lot guess, of responsibility. I guess my, sure. my struggle with yeah, is sure. that, like, yeah, when you think about, is God's word sufficient for all time and all culture? Because when you think about like the structure in which, even when the word of God was originally given, 
uh, there was a lot of literacy during that time. And, and Paul's command to Timothy is to not act out the word, right? Not to literate. He says to preach the word, like to herald it, to proclaim it. And you have to ask yourself, is that sufficient? Is the proclamation of the word of God sufficient or is it lacking? Whereas we need to, in our ingenuity, add something to it. Or is it. this a replacement uh, of the word or is it just a, like a sermon on, in visual? Yeah, to point to the word. Like Whereas, that's my yeah. question. I don't think it's replacing the word. No, and the, but like my, I guess my concern is that there, there, there. When you're when you do it in this artistic light, you are adding liberties to things that it does change. Like I've even seen some quotes and some like I watched a scene about Christ at the woman at the well, and the interaction there. I was just kind of like, I don't think that's how that went down. That's not actually the conversation that happened there. And that kind of bothered me because I was like, no, actually that's not what Jesus said. And that's not actually how that woman responded. Not if you're reading it in its narrative, but they, they spiced it up a little bit. And so that's where I'm like, I don't know if that was necessary for me to really love and enjoy Christ, to see something that actually wasn't accurate, it was inaccurate. And I would have just as much of a problem if a guy got up and started preaching and describing something to me, and I'm like, that's actually not what happened. I don't have a problem with a pastor who's like, hey, this is kind of what you could maybe have expected. And he starts describing, like, let's say, think about the guy at the, the Pool of Siloam, right? And Jesus goes and he heals yeah. the guy there. And he starts describing things there. And he's like, well, there's this rock band. And then there was like, and you're like, well, wait, what? <laughs> right? right? You're like, that's actually not what's happening. And you would probably take, we're to be preachers and people of the word in its absolute perfect accuracy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just take I take qualms with it when you start messing with it. I, I'm not okay with the, that. The, I think the only well, Jesus. Respectable. I understand that. It's respectable. The only Jesus movie that you guys would come close to endorsing would be the Gospel of John with Desmond from Lost. That oh, came that out is a couple actually... years ago. Got translated into a million that languages. Was good. It's full text. Yeah. There's still <laughs> our inevitable artistic license. But sure. this brings us back to your guys's main. Mo, because you had said it's not our normal fare to be taking no. pot shots at no. what Hollywood does with Jesus. Like no. you can, you know, you can. We leave that to you guys <laughs> to figure that out, to figure all that out. And and, and you know, the passion yeah. or the chosen or I saw just on TV years ago just the crucifixion scene from a Christian Bale Jesus movie, and it was like huh. very Catholic. But man, crucifixion scenes they'll move you. It's, oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Here's here's what I wanted to get back to. Just yeah. your normal fare has detours, but you're always coming back to the Word. You're always coming back to theology. You're always coming back to the solas. The one thing I wanted to zoom in on was you are covenantal, Uh but you're covenantal Baptist. You don't baptize babies. That's the most fun part of being covenantal. So what made you all? What made you Scott all? Scott Clark is totally he's, in a he's opposition. All about it. He's a sprinkler. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a, a sprinkler. So what made you guys be we'll covenantal? But yeah, we're gonna do a podcast with Scott tonight. I joked with him. I said, I remember. I love that scene where G, where John the Baptist sprinkles, sprinkles Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> and he was like, that was "Well, good. that was oh, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you probably yeah. did." I'm like, "They were in a river." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so go ahead. How'd you land on Covenantal Baptist? Well, just real quick, I mean, historical data, most people don't understand this, but like uh, we hold to the 1689, there were Baptists earlier on that understood the covenants and embraced them and loved them, but there was an issue when we were thinking about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And so you you have, we've had for over 300 years, men who are covenantal, but yet or we created, understand yeah. that baptism Baptist. is an administration given to those who are of the new covenant, not 
anyways, we can get into the whole covenantal thing. But so in other words, to be a covenantal Baptist is not a new phenomenon. It's definitely not new at all. Now it's been lost in into the mires and weeds, I think, and there's not very many of them. There's a huge resurgence resurgence happening right now, which we're excited about. We're part of a I'm just gonna do a shameless plug here, but we're part of a church planning network called Grace Reform Network, which still is still being formed. Still yeah. being formed, but it's uh, all of these yeah, exactly. Oh, Ooh. Amen. But it's all of these covenantal Baptists who are excited about covenant theology and preaching these truths and understanding that, you know, I mean, listen, the, the, the short answer of it is, is that when we read Scripture, and I love and respect my Presbyterian mm-hmm. brothers, but when we read Scripture and it says, those who are in the new covenant receive the covenant sign, we don't believe that you can enter into the new covenant of Christ by birth. It so has to be by spiritual birth. The way Amen. we understand the covenant of grace to be revealed in Scripture is what drives our administration of baptism. That's right. And so 1689, Federalists, as they're known, so covenantal theologians that of a bygone era... Federalism, a that just means like yeah, headship. language for yeah. covenantalism, right? So we understand, without getting too much in the weeds here, the covenant of grace is, is the covenant where God gives to sinners... Everything that Christ has accomplished, we receive it by faith, right? Jesus fulfills a covenant of works. He fulfills the law, its requirements, and its penalty. And everything that he does is given to us. We receive it by faith. That's promised in Genesis 3.15. It's revealed by farther steps through all the Old Testament, including with Abraham. So we, unlike our Presbyterian and capital R Reformed Church brethren, do not understand that the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. We understand that there are two things going on with Abraham. There is the covenant of circumcision that relates to Abraham's physical offspring, and there is the promise of the covenant of grace to Abraham and his spiritual offspring. Mm. This is how we would understand that the text in Genesis, as well as Paul's interpretation of them in Romans and Galatians. So that means that as the covenant of grace, the promise is revealed further and further and further through the Old Testament, it's established with the coming of Christ and what he did. That's right. So that drives our administration of baptism. I hope some of that made sense. That, that made perfect sense. So you've talked about the covenant of works. Uh-huh. You've talked about With the covenant Adam. of grace. Uh-huh. Right. You've talked about the, the covenant, covenant of redemption. Of redemption. Uh-huh. What are Which your... is in eternity past, yeah. made between the Father and the Son. Hmm. What are your three favorite covenants? Those. <laughs> Those three. Now let's, now let's see if I can pull I a fast think. one on John. What are your seven favorite dispensations? <laughs> Come on with it, John. Well, it depends on the dispensational writer, because <laughs> they don't all agree that's even seven. <laughs> that's so true. Dispensationalism. Okay, now listen, I think I, I would love to sit here and talk with you guys all day. I actually do think we probably should wrap. Um, so listen, thank you guys so much Yeah, yeah. for coming in. This was really encouraging to my spirit, Amen. and I, I love it that we got a chance to talk about all this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having um, us. Yeah, so for those it. of you who uh, are tuning in, you guys, if you want to come to the Subscriber Lounge, you're going to get to see the rest of this conversation. We're going to ask them the 10 questions. Ooh. So thank you guys so yeah. much. Thanks thank for having guys. us. Thanks for having all us, right. guys. This, this has been, been a fun. blast. Yeah. Yeah.